Hi everyone, welcome to the first uh, Chronicle at the Tech Lodge. These are small, serious conversations on the relationship between humanity and technology. Stardate, what is it, Tuesday, January 22nd, 2020 at 4 p.m. Welcome everyone. Uh, if you could go around and just say your name and uh, what you're doing. We're going to be talking about a topic, is technology causing rapid evolution to emerge? and really diving into what that means and the potential implications, starting to my right. I'm Kevin Esfeldt. I'm an assistant professor at the MIT Media Lab, where I run the Sculpting Evolution Group. I work on a wide variety of biotech and increasingly some cryptography as applied to biotech. My specialty is in harnessing evolution to evolve new proteins and also controlling fitness in the wild, that is evolutionary fitness, to control whether or not an engineered construct made in the laboratory will begin to spread in the wild. This obviously has a number of implications for public trust in science and also security concerning whether or not that technology is slow, readily detected, and readily countered or not. Hello, my name is uh, Fleming Lund. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur and started several different uh, companies within uh, mobile payment systems. Uh, what we're working on now and introducing, in, especially in the African region, is a form uh, method to increase GDP through uh, financial systems, uh, mainly based on blockchain and cloud-based technology. Um, so that's our focus at the moment. I am Ben Rudnick. Chief Products Officer and Exponential Inspiration Officer for Accelera Health. We're an open platform system transforming healthcare with tech and biotech using AI, genomics, natural language, and a few other fun technologies to evolve healthcare from its current state of sick care into our future hope of well care. Great, thank you everyone. The question again is, is technology causing rapid evolution to emerge? And it's very interesting listening to this introduction. Um, we have people who are looking at the biological side of it, and we have people who are looking at the technological side of it. So I think, um, you know, let's just start off. Do you guys have any initial thoughts about yes or no? <clears throat> is it possible that technology is impacting the course of uh, evolution? And the, the thinking behind that comes from obviously evolution becoming very, very slow, but technology through augmentation uh, is perhaps having an impact. So why exactly would one think that technology does anything other than evolve itself? That is, evolution occurs whenever you have the imperfect replication of information by definition, yeah. because then you have heritable variation and then you have selection for improved replication. Isn't there, isn't there also the issue of applicability and issues such as uh, regulation, etc., which can stand in the way and act as... Um, but the, you're talking about the metal level. The metal itself, yes. And then we would say that those factors, regulation, etc., yeah. in cognitive, cognitive fit with the human mind, ability to pass from one mind to another of a given, of a given piece of information, which could be an idea, which could be a technology, etc., then the effectiveness of that technology at doing good in the world as perceived by people who could adopt it and therefore copy it mm -hmm. or produce it and so forth. The idea, Scaling. So all of these all these factors then control the comparative fitness landscape of the technology. Sure. Do we lock it in, a, in a current form because of all of those factors that then would constrain its ability to move in whatever we define as the landscape of, of the technology itself? Can it evolve and move or are we lock it in a form <coughs> because we have, say, I.O. standards and the like? So what really strikes me with that is this idea, which I've never, I've never had this thought, but information as a species, mm -hmm. right? So if information is a species and it's imperfectly replicating, it, it's almost like we're seeing a Cambrian explosion right now. So absolutely. And you can argue, so Richard Dawkins introduced the idea of a meme mm. as analogous to a gene as a sort of a unit of replication of culture in a way. Now the field of cultural evolution is sort of emerges a branch of evolutionary anthropology. Dawkins' meme was a sort of a, let's focus on the basics of what exactly is replicating. And you can, and he thought of it as something different from genes. Mm -hmm. But really, the meme is the superclass that defines the information being replicated. And nucleic acids is just a subset of the information that can evolve, one it's particular form encoded. 
Absolutely. And, and what's interesting is we can, of course, encode information encoded in nucleic acids in other means. For example, we have GenBank for all DNA we've ever sequenced that we can then turn back into nucleic acid form using DNA synthesis and assembly. Mm -hmm. So you can say the smallpox virus would not be extinct even if we eradicated the last physical stockpiles because we, we were dumb enough to put it <clears> in our servers. Well, and this kind of, one of the ideas that I was thinking about when we were developing this first chronicle is this idea that CRISPR in particular actually gives us for the first time the capability to start to gene edit with other species or cross species. So there's a term called, I don't know if you've ever heard, Lucan sapien, but Lucan sapien essentially means last universal yeah. common ancestor because we are a hominid and we might be the last generation um, to exist fully in that form because soon it will be possible to you know splice other species into our DNA mm -hmm. which to me points toward extremely rapid evolution it's just conscious evolution versus arbitrary evolution um, okay, the memes essentially taking over and then rewriting the genes on which mm -hmm. that where does um, singularity fit in that? You could say that the singularity is the point at which the this is this is new, so I'm I'm really spouting off here. Yeah. I would define the singularity as the it's point relevant. where the informational arms race in terms of the memes selecting for increasing evolutionary arms races in and amongst themselves. Yeah. Converge. Converge, yeah. Well we'll converge? converge. No. I, I, it's hard to say. It's hard to say converge. I mean, singularity is Meet. But the point. At, well, yeah, the, the, the point at which they probably convert all relevant matter into into the same thing, information more or less. Yeah, and, or at least into information processing capacity. Wow. So I love this. This is kind of beyond my wildest hopes for this conversation because this idea of information as a species evolving itself, which may eventually or beyond, from a singularity standpoint, if you're saying then that information will conquer us all. Mm -hmm. are we, what are we but information? I mean, yeah. the other way of thinking it is, are we our genes or are we our ideas? Or are we our, are we our fondness for other people? Are we our, are we our emotions, our memories, and so forth? Aren't we much more our meme, our memeplex than our, than our, our genes? Post from a cultural standpoint, for sure. <clears throat> yeah. Tim, can you talk a little bit about head and what the ambition is from a technology standpoint with oh, relation this, to the human? Yeah, well, this is completely, you guys have blown my mind just from, from the biological standpoint and, and, and the high-level high standpoint. What we're doing is more of an external um, way of filtering the, uh, the, 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 the glut of information that we have right now. There's so much around us. There's so much noise. There's, there's so much uh, static uh, around and what distortion, we're to, distortion in many ways as well, um, and what we're trying to do is a lot of people have lost their, their their vision lately with technology because their their eyes are literally in their devices all the time, and so what we're attending to do is to give people back their sight by getting them out of technology and back into the world and let the technology be fed in quietly through audio, uh, through a series of uh, 3D audio prompts and, and and little triggers and sounds. Um, that enable you to uh, navigate information that you need while maintaining your attention in the world around you. Um, we don't believe in, in heads-up displays uh, you know, the, or, or things that are projected in your field of vision. Um, everything that you need, you can see already. Um, and so we really think that sound is the solution for, uh, for, for navigating. Is it mind-prompting? Would you say mind prompting in that little Well, the, what, what we're hoping to achieve is, is a, a certain form of, it's an overused word now, but uh, artificial intelligence okay. um, uh, to, to, to uh, learn what the user needs, and everybody's users uh, have different needs. So it, it's, it learns what your needs are, what you consider to be important information over time, and won't, won't uh, you know, won't, won't uh, charge you with a whole bunch of information and knowledge that you don't need. So fit the filter. Isn't it also, my understanding about head and why I'm so excited for it is I also have the feeling that it is about augmentation because, you know, you're putting this device in an audio format, but, you know, it's designed to be more then, you know, isn't, doesn't it include a hearing aid so it augments your hearing? It's, yes, it's, it's got intelligence. It has lots of things that 
typically a person might consider augmentation? Well, it's always been kind of a stigma to, to wear a hearing aid. And I think there's a lot of people in the world that have hearing issues, small or large or anywhere in between. Uh, either they care, you know, don't feel comfortable in admitting it or to themselves or others and, and don't, don't tend to it. Uh, we have a, a system called superhuman hearing um, that allows you to have directional hearing and filter, uh, fil filter out certain sounds and, and filter in some certain sounds and be able for the user to actually control that, so to control their environmental noise around them. Uh, to me, that's a form of augmentation because you're, yeah. you're enhancing the clarity. So even a, a person who has normal hearing would be able to enhance or expand their hearing range. You know, that, that to me sounds like a really interesting It augments the hearing. It doesn't necessarily augment the species. It, it, it doesn't <laughs> augment the thinking, but it might yeah, be. Yeah. Well, so this, this actually raises a point, though, because maybe it does. Um, I was talking to somebody recently, and they were, it was, I don't even know if I can articulate this well, and I want to come over to Gonzo in a second, but the, um, th there is this idea that the culture, especially meme culture, is actually propelled by what you might call space. Mm -hmm. And so, because we as a species are moving towards, hi, welcome. <coughs> it's okay, you're just joining in time. This is Andre from JEDI, the Joint European Disruptive Initiative. Um, and we've, just for your reference, uh, we've audioed everything. Okay. And so, hi, everybody. Um, this is Andre from, from JEDI, and you know, here in our JEDI Chronicle. So, um, we've really been talking about bio-augmentation and whether or not evolution is potentially speeding up. So. Um, I was just about to say, there is this discussion or this idea that um, creating space in the mind through technology actually allows the brain or the, the person to be able to get to new areas of consciousness. And like conscious evolution is also a form that may not be physical, physically manifested, but it's actually providing space for us to be able to think differently. And so one of the basic examples of this is if they do brain tests on young children today, four, five, six, eight, who've been exposed to, say, today's technology, they find that their brains function in a different way than children mm -hmm. did a generation ago. There's much more prefrontal cognition, and so they're able to essentially... Less memory requirement. Well, exactly. Yeah. And so what's happening is that they're not developing the, the backloads of the yeah. brain as much, but their prefrontals are like getting enlarged. And so the prefrontal cortexes are like actually literally physically larger than the back cortexes were a generation ago. And that's just in one generation. So when you actually talk about introducing something like this, it's expanding your range of hearing or expanding these other things, it could be potentially then moving the physical evolution over time. We're gonna to go to um, Gonzo for a second and then kind of get you up to speed with the conversation. So what are your thoughts? Well, one of the things that I was inspired by this conversation is, is evolution physical and inheritable, or is it related to our capability? And it speaks to exactly what you were just bringing up in that our capabilities are evolving, not without our genetics evolving. It doesn't have to be inheritable. And so technology is exactly what is driving that, and it's also accelerating at an exponential rate because technology's evolution of itself, to speak to the concept of the data and tech being another kind of thing that's evolving, that's on its own pace. So there's a synergy between the two. I'm not convinced that it's accelerating because of the low-hanging fruit effect, primarily. Tell, tell us more about that. Selectivity. So continued advances become more difficult insofar as we've already picked all the easy low-hanging fruit. And historically, if you draw this curve of when we should hit the singularity, most yeah. pretty much historically, you can argue about the exact time, but it all converges sometime around the 21st century-ish. But then we lost that curve. We fell off of it. And it seems to be because that Are curve- Are you talking Moore's Law? Or no, beyond? No, okay. no, rate, essentially rate of invention, invention progress because as long as we were in the Malthusian trap, mm -hmm. we directly improved our ability to harness energy and raw materials. Mm -hmm. We converted into the people. People can invent new things. So more people equaled more inventions mm -hmm. directly. And then this was, of course, a feedback cycle. Oh, so the growth of the population isn't being related to the growth of like technological productivity. Because we made the mistake oh, of inventing wild. tractors and things like that, 
to do all of the labor rather than turning it directly into people. That is, the Industrial Revolution, the escape from Malthusian trap, meant we were no longer expanding our population as rapidly as possible, which in turn meant fewer inventors, which means we fell off the curve. So if you okay. want to get back on the curve and restart the singularity, we need AI. Well, so you just took or, words out of or, my or, or, or sufficient, or no, sufficient cognitive enhancement. Because we're at a point now where like, maybe humans won't be the only ones contributing to the singularity. And so I often have this thought, so, you know, we have the ice house where it's all about climate and, you know, the circular economy and saving nature and biodiversity. But then I kind of think like, if we look like a uh, hundred or 500 years in the future, will whatever is there look back at today's machine age with these microphone speakers and cars and phones as their ancestors and look at them <clears> as a form of primitive <throat> life for what they are now. And they would actually look at today as being a, a Cambrian explosion of life, but it's just silicon-based life instead of carbon-based life. Mm -hmm. And I often think about that. You're the first person I've ever met who's actually alluded to that. But it seems to make sense to me. Like I think that, you know, in the time-space linear future from this simulation, the idea that there would be multiple contributors to the singularity beyond the human species seems pretty inevitable. Don't you think that? Um this discussion, if you're talking about 500 years from now, we're talking about a totally different, well, then we get into astrophysics and, you know, yeah. getting all the I mean, so provided we survive it. But, yeah, okay. they're trying to find out, you know, why we were created, but equally, I mean, I, I appreciate the word pause in the space race and everything else after, you know, from, from the rise of the path. There's a very big move now taking place to yeah. really to take us to a point where we'll, we'll be talking about two, three hundred years from now, it'll be very different well, to uh, something on the Earth. And I was being way generous about that number, yeah. because I personally think it's more like 30 to 50 years. I don't know, how long, do you have any sense of time on that scale? I hope we can survive the next 30 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From my field. Yeah. That's sort of the goal. We can, we can deal with the question of AI singleton, or AGI mm -hmm. singleton versus multiple versus post-human and augmented humans enhancement. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. To what extent human values will win out? That's a we can argue about that. We definitely have to get through the next thirty years intact yeah. first. And in, in a system in which, speaking <clears throat> of evolution, we are now selecting for quite strongly just-in-time delivery. Yeah, mm -hmm. which makes for an exceptionally fragile system. Yeah. yeah, you have to invest resources in order to get resilience, and we have mm -hmm. no selective pressures yeah, incentivizing re resilience. Which is that is not because a there's no coordinated, coordinated effort towards it? Is that because there are so many? Um, Technological centers that are in their own way have vested interests in, in, in uh, health care, for instance. So everybody is trying to get their own ways to make money rather than having a collective. Do we need to have some kind of universal within the world view to try and break through this time pressure? I would suggest yes. that, yeah, basically, what I'm doing. you need something yeah. else, That's some other doing. outside, non ideally non market right. force yeah. to select for this. Because as long as you're relying entirely on market forces, you want more effective delivery of goods and services at mm -hmm. ever lower prices. And then the issue is the capital required to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Capital required to do it. And, and as long as you do that, you're going to end up with ever, ever more just-in-time, extremely fragile, mm -hmm. but ever more efficient delivery systems. And if you want resilience, that requires redundancy. And redundancy is expensive. And there's no one selecting, there's no one willing to pay for that because we're not running no one can government. We're not running government strongly enough to demand it. And you also just touched on the, the core mission of global government. Tech Lodge, like even national government. Why? Take the United States of America. I, I don't actually know about Europe. I'd be curious to know. But we are so incredibly vulnerable to any kind of major EMP. Mm -hmm. the, like the, a, a repeat of the, the Carrington event from the 19th century will fry most of our grid. And we could prevent that by just hardening 10% of it. We have no idea how common these things are, other than that the last one happened back when we only had telegraphs. We also know that one could do it deliberately in a number of ways, but we haven't bothered to do that because it would require investing in our infrastructure and actually making it resilient. Scary. And if we can't do that... Uh, yeah, how are we going to actually... So one of the main missions, actually the <coughs> singular main mission of the Tech Lodge, um, was to actually explore this idea of the relationship between humanity and tech, and to have some conversations about what we need to do big picture to get the human part of tech right, because we're, we're moving so quickly into this, this new world, and you know we have competitive pressures from an economic standpoint because of our economic model that actually disincentivizes and almost even prevents the longer-term view. So what you're talking about there with long-term resiliency, it's actually 
baked into the economics of the current economic system. And this is, what, this is what I've been thinking about for the last year. It's like, we need to have these conversations about like, how do we start to prepare for this? Because this is coming inevitably, but we are not structurally prepared to be able to accept or manage it. And we're, I think we're at the last moment to be able to actually, I don't even, it may be too late to control it, but we need to at least start to hopefully get the going in the right direction. Um, Fleming, you haven't said much, and I think we love to hear from Andre. So <clears throat> maybe I should open up, you know, my side of it is technology, mobile phones. Uh, we've been working the last 20 years in the African region. Being able to introduce a mobile phone to an African sitting in, in the village having access to absolutely nothing. And within like three months, the, the way they, they can adapt to that technology means that latently, latently, we have so many capabilities that we don't even have to evolve that much mm -hmm. to actually improve ourselves immensely, the way that I see it. Like now, 20 years later, it's um, the mobile payment systems, the financial system, mobile uh, financial systems are way more advanced in the African region than here, in the developed country. Because here we have so many... Old um, systems. Like old systems, like, like, like resistance against yeah. uh, the banking se yeah, sector, absolutely. resistance against... So, if there isn't any urgency, which I see that there is a lot of urgency happening right now in the African region, you know, involvement and you know, development within any kind of uh, structure, I, I see that it's difficult to happen. So my point is just that I've seen people living in villages, create businesses, making their own living, changing their lives. So, you know, it's that evolving or, or what kind of involvement are we talking about? But it's just amazing to be part of that, providing this technology into their hands. Well, it's certainly cultural evolution. No exactly. Doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Rapid. I think that's the most interesting thing of all, is, is that actually, um, in, in a way, the more technologically advanced countries, nations, uh, companies never have been in the past, the harder it is for them to catch up with new technologies, because they're stuck with vestigial interests. Uh, it's even true of companies. You know, you could, I mean, anyone who's seen the sewage system in, in, you know, in London or the underground system, you know, the guys in Tokyo, and the reason the guys in Tokyo have a better system is because the place was, was bombed, basically. So now, if we move even further forward, you could argue no, you, you got not this denigrating the issues developers that dilemma, in Africa, right? that their yeah. level of, of, of application of and lack of barriers to technology is far higher, exactly. paradoxically, than ours is. And, and then you have this uh, very important ingredient, you have urgency. If you have urgency, suddenly you get creativity, you get you know speed, you get action, you get everything. But you know, this actually links right into Jedi, right? Because mm -hmm. Europe, on the technology front is considered to be perhaps slower than say the US. And part of that is maybe the inbuilt legacy of the continent. You know, it's, it's like, I'm wondering what you think about that or is that, Let me tell you, uh, can Europe there's, there's a, always a difference between Europe and the Europeans. I don't know if yeah. you know about that, but in the team, I had a statistic a year ago, I don't know if it's still accurate, in the AI team in Menlo Park or Facebook, a third of the people, I mean, it's pretty well known that Nian Lequin is the head of it, but a third of the people are French. So actually, it's not the people, it's, it's the system which makes it more difficult. Let me tell you about two stories, listening to you, um, termites and, you know termites, who are eating mm -hmm. wood, and uh, um, when you see how they're building their own uh, you know, infrastructure, it's probably the most uh, energy resilient effort. Mm -hmm. And contrary to, to bees, there is no queen or king. So nobody really knows how this collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. So building on your point, and, and you're right, there is the feeling that there are less big inventors, like big aha moments, and look at also how the Nobel Prize is increasingly difficult to attribute to one person because increasingly there's this collective intelligence. So I would actually disagree on the fact that there is less breakthroughs today, but there are less breakthroughs in the classical term where indeed we reap the low-hanging fruits, which was very relatively linear. And today increasingly it comes from places where nobody expected. And it's super difficult for all of us to imagine a phone, I mean, a communication device, which will not look like that. But it's pretty sure that in 10 or 15 years, it will be radically different. 
And that's why it's so different. But I think it also fills me with hope because this, what you said about Africa applies to everybody. I mean, there is, there is this permanent reinvention and that there is no destiny or that civilization die like, like before. Let, let me give you a few, um, I mean, so we are trying to build the European equivalent to DARPA with two big differences. One, so uh, launching ground challenges and moonshots. One is it's not military oriented because there's no such thing as dual use. Most of the tech today is dual use. And second thing, we, we believe uh, there is a huge opportunity and we can see that in Davos uh, to say that there are more and more systems we're using technology for, you know, civilization prevalence and, and political goals. We, we, we can feel who we're talking about. And increasingly, there is this myth of tech for tech. We believe that there is really a, an aspiration for a lot of population to see uh, innovation as a way to solve big societal issues. And on the human augmentation topic, which is one of our four big missions, first, I don't know if you talked about the data amount that we are experiencing. I mean, this data, was that data? Discovered, yeah. uh, discussed? <clears throat> I mean, how basically since mankind um, emerged until 10 years ago, it was like two, it was doubled until 2016, it's going to double again in the next 12 months. And so AI for us is not just, it's actually an, an imperative because increasingly, what does it mean, this data flow? And we feel it that less and less we understand the world in which we are. I mean, all of us are flooded with WhatsApps and SMS. And, mm -hmm. in, and then you have your American president that every morning is putting the world upside down with his tweet. I mean, we are in what the financiers would call a, a hugely volatile world, and it's just going to go like that. So if you don't have AI to... To, 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 I used to be in the Air Force before, you know, and you have so much information coming to you that if you don't have a system which allows you to, to actually understand what is important, what is not important, increasingly we will lose the capacity as humans to have an impact, well, which so, is very yeah, well. Yeah, this is huge. It's like AI is a pre-filter. Yeah. Exactly. Because With so all the risks yeah. associated. So well, who yeah. is going to... To do the constitution. So what's crazy is with all that information, and if you can adjust the filters to your needs, then you get the information that you need and nothing of what you don't. Exactly. And yeah. where we are today is that you have intermediaries. When I see that, for example, you know, deep fakes is one of our challenges we are launching. When I see, and I'm not an anti-Facebook person at all, but when I see that it's Facebook, the only ones on among the only ones who's really trying to find a solution, you know, to identify uh, deep fakes in real time. It's the Ministry of Truth uh, of the famous mm -hmm. book, right? Yeah. Do we want to delegate this power? And how can we repersonalize AI that is adapted to everybody's needs? How can we make sure it's not Amazon who knows better than us what we want to buy, which we all had this feeling, right? Sometimes. Which is the world we're in today. Yeah. And <clears throat> I find it really scary to hear that the volume of information that we can all be expected to be surrounded by in the next 12 months is going to double because even in the last six months, I feel like the deluge that's coming in through my phone is so overwhelming that I can barely process it. And, and I know that's, more that's, that's, that's good news for AI, though, because mm -hmm. the more data, the more robust. Well, but it also it means like, it means mm -hmm. that, I've done it for a while with Hub, like, you know, we have Zeek.ai, our AI project, yeah. and we have a very specific strategy around um, AI, and it's moving very, very slowly. And I think about three years ago, we realized that AI had to be like a major priority for us because we realized the company wouldn't survive without our own AI project. And yeah. if I may yeah. add one thing, I mean, uh, I have an 18 months old kid and actually I, I kind of disagree with this big data thing because big data seems to be as an as a, as a ob objective concept, but we are not, we don't need millions of images to understand what is a cat and we extrapolate what is a dog. My 18 months old probably saw three times in his life a cat. He now knows what an animal is. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this is also the, we need to make sure that AI is adapted to the way humans, or at the contrary, we, we go away where this intelligence is very different than ours. But we need to recognize that. Today, uh, the, the, the perception with a lot of the population is that AI is kind of replacing you and it's not this filter, this augmentation factor. And I think it's a huge empowerment tool provided we use it like that. So I have a question about AI regarding to the central question, which is, does the table think that AI will merge with us? Uh, to me, that's the fundamental question about this session is, are we on track? Well, that's what we want, right? If you don't, we've got cats. Well, if you 
let's just put it this way. There is going to be something that is of superhuman intelligence. Yeah. And it's either going to be directly augmented humans, yeah. or it's going to be something that we create or evolve that is going to be fundamentally more alien. Yeah. And that it's going to have a value system that determines what it does. And if it's not directly descended from us, and therefore part of the continued progression of moral values that we at least think is right, of course we would or we wouldn't hold those moral values, right? But we at least recognize that future generations are probably going to think that we're morally despicable for things that we don't even recognize are problems. Mm -hmm. And we recognize that we're probably going to, we would agree with them if we lived that long, which yeah. we hope to do. Mm -hmm. So, okay, but what are the odds that out of the space of all possible moral systems that we can build something artificial super artificial superintelligence that can even hit the area where all human value systems ever are in that general area, let alone get where we current towards where we currently are and on the right trajectory of, of discovery based improvement. That seems like a tall order. Not, not necessarily well, impossible, but that's, that's the challenge really of AI, of AI alignment. But, I mean, this is you the thing, like, we're not at all focused or organized about like creating those, those pathways or the, the, the guardrails. And we also don't want to do it too much because you, you can end up ending up in a, you, you think that the path is the right one and then it ends up not being the right, right exactly. one. Exactly. Well, we're something in the dark, but that's, mm -hmm. that, that's yeah. now. You, you, can you need to define what, what the goal is. There's no Aristotelian, you talk about moral, there's no Aristotelian absolute. We're, we don't, we're not, none of us are really quite sure what it is. And, even, and also whether it's practical. You know, this is very relevant. We've had a lady who spoke at your thing last week, the last year, and this is speaking now. We, we get it. But is it practical? How does it work? You know, there's no, there's no are we going to evolve these things, or, 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 or are things just impossible? Well, in some ways, you can argue it would be lovely if we don't have to face that challenge of what to do about a superintelligent yeah. AGI for a while. On yeah. the other hand, yeah. maybe we need it to save us. How long do you think we have before we have to make that call? Or is it the leading, the estimates from leaders in the field of AI keep going down, but whether or not they're that's accurate, who knows? Well, there's some, there's some people who believe that there's already some level of something happening in the network. So when we talk about the network, I'm sort of referring to the internet, but let's just say that for the definition of the network, I'm saying the system of links and nodes that are digital today. Um, we've experienced it within our own network with unexplained phenomena, which I would, um, you know, essentially we've had machines paying machines but outside of our own system, but essentially using them. And I've, we've heard about languages being created by AIs in very short periods of time that we don't understand. And if, if those are the things that we know about now, there is a question about, are there things going on that we don't know about? <coughs> are there system, are, is there communication, is there information that is alien to us that's being transmitted by the network? that we're, as humans, actually not aware of. Mind control, for instance? No, more like, is the internet already talking to itself, but subtext. outside of a way that we don't subtext of, of sorts, technology. Or if subtext. it invented Overtext. its own communication protocols, like we're now able to have AIs invent their own computer languages, yes. are they inventing their own computer protocols that are maybe even getting sent through the power grid rather than through mm -hmm. the traditional internet? Do you think, is it possible that that's already happening? It's already been proven that you can do that. Hold on. That you can do that? That somebody is computing this? No, that's well, that's not, not human. It's, proven, it's proven that you can send data as a layer through the power grid. Of course. That's the that's question. Your question is, that's that's is that's it happening that's that's sui generis? Right? Well, the, the question but if is the machines is like, did it are, on their own, yeah. they decided to create their own is protocols that were hidden underneath, and if we weren't looking for that, we wouldn't see it. It would just be noise to us. If you're doing your design-based process involves some degree of just selecting for the output that you're interested in, then we know that they will adapt to imperfections in the, in the physical chip that they're printed on, mm -hmm. and that they will adapt to those imperfections and actually leverage them, including the leveraging quantum tunneling that shouldn't be possible unless you have a specific flaw in the chip. Mm -hmm. And they will, but they, they do that, whatever tricks there are, if you, if you do it that way. So the question is, is someone run some process for which it would be advantageous to the process to do this if it had access to it, well, and it was, it was enabled to by the program. I, I mean, there's, some, probably, there's right? some people that think that Bitcoin is a really simple AI that's optimized for consuming energy. Mm -hmm. And it used the currency as a way to trick humans to, to 
support it, right? I mean, it's brilliant from that kind of standpoint. As a kind of a biological <laughs> That's micro, a very interesting as Bitcoin, the first living um, information system. And I know a lot of people deep in Bitcoin who think that, you know, it is potentially, it's unstoppable. Um, we can't destroy it unless we destroy the internet. So by doing that, we destroy ourselves. It, you know, there is some thinking that we're now, on the, and it's very interesting when you think about that because this idea that we are being incentivized to create the system that will then eventually be able to conquer mm -hmm. us. Yeah. It's really quite yeah. something. Well, of course we are. We're already talking about how we want to augment ourselves yeah. or create things that are more that are more capable than we are. We are we are actively striving to make ourselves well, obsolete. And, I, I don't think and that's that, not a bad thing. Right. But I don't think we were doing that three years ago. Like this right. is the first We're conversation I've been in where I feel like people are like there's no question about it because Typically, in these conversations, there has been an objection on the human augmentation front, which is around no, 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 no. this idea of, like, if you have some superhumans who are augmented, what does that do to the rest of society? And, you know, I think in this conversation so far, we've completely ignored the potential impacts to the rest of society because it's not going to be evenly distributed. And when you have some super augmented humans who are connected to that network, um, the ones who are not, the, the disparity level between them is so large that I think it would cause social conflict. And we're not doing anything to try to evenly distribute that. I, I, I stand if I may say, I heard a very interesting comment today about you know, energy saying, all these people building this coalition with the great companies, actually it's not moving the needle. What you need is to work with the worst companies, because then you have the famous 80-20 rule, the impact of their small improvement would be much more massive than the mm -hmm. incremental. So my thought would be actually that AI would be actually much more powerful for people who have much less access mm -hmm. to information to understand the world. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think the situation is kind of flipped. The, uh, the disparity where the few had more, is, it was more of 200 years ago. And that in the future, the, the, the technology augmentation is something that when we choose to, we can scale infinitely because it's technology. It, can be built, it, it could reach everybody could. as opposed to uh, a car in 1900 only being to very, very few people. Well, two points. I hate to, I hate to always throw you know, cold water on, no, on everyone. But, please do. But it is true that historically, the only times that inequality have ever, has ever decreased has been in the aftermath of a massive disaster. Whether it's warfare, whether it's some kind of nasty climate mess, some kind of collapse. An apocalypse, yeah. Well, and because it topples the top. Yeah, that's the only way to do it. And we've never managed to do it in a way that doesn't involve that. In fact, World War II in the US was great for that. It just wasn't so hot for everyone else. Everyone else. So given that inequality seems to be a one-way ratchet absent disaster, all of our talk about technology is going to improve it. It's going to go to the people who, who have the least and improve them while history suggests otherwise. Now, we can always say this will be the first time it'll be different. But I can also point out that historically, the average, tech, the average invention has indisputably made people's lives better. Just look at yeah. every yeah. Yeah. So the, the tide is rising. So for some boats, it's going stratospheric. But that does not necessarily, and that's an inequality factor, but that also does not mean that necessarily technology will be net beneficial in the future. Because as it becomes more powerful and accessible, it's possible that we will stumble across things that are could actually threaten the stability of the system as a whole. Yeah, well, Do the we world have... will not end with a bang, but when a scientist says, oops. Or rather, they probably won't say oops, because they will never realize what they have done mm -hmm. until well, it's too late. We mm -hmm. have 10 more minutes left in this conversation, and I think it would be kind of fun to actually take it a little bit deeper on this, because... Um, the biological, you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation, Kevin, that um, you know, you're working on this idea of um, can a synthetically engineered biological organism succeed in the wild? Uh, maybe that's a different way of saying it, but I don't know if that's yeah. exactly correct. Yeah. I'm curious about like, what your findings or leadings are toward that, because that has a huge impact on potentially pathogen. So there are probably the greatest risk, aside from nuclear war, is pathogen risk. And I'm curious, like, what you think the likelihood of pathogen risk derailing a lot of this is? Hold. I need to introduce the concept of an information hazard to anyone who does not who does not understand it. That is, information hazard is information which is true that if disseminated will cause harm. Mm -hmm. Now that we're talking about 
ways of bringing down the system that could actually be accessible to reasonably small groups of humans yeah. were verging on that territory. Right. So I'm going to self-censor pretty extraordinarily. I might even lie if I think that it's necessary on topics like this. So I just wanted to disclose that. I think it's the right thing. Yeah. Everyone should agree that it's, it's the, the right thing to agree. do. Agree. Yeah, agree. To self-censor. And even if necessary, if someone pushes you on it to possibly tell an untruth, depend. Okay, agree. So what do we know? And here I can just say, point to the published literature. We know that we can build constructs that in the laboratory, in contained populations, because we haven't dared try them in the wild, the construct is inherited at such a high frequency that it massively overwhelms any fitness disadvantage corresponding to the associated trait. So we call this a gene drive. It's a ubiquitous strategy in nature, basically. Why bother improving the organism's chances of reproduction when you can just ensure you're inherited by more than the normal number of offspring? Virus. It's a gene drive. It's different. The virus is a, par virus is a parasite that is unrelated to host reproduction entirely. A gene drive is still coupled to host reproduction. Oh, it, needs, it needs to not have a so cost like more a real than 50%. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's a real And it's ubiquitous. Our genomes are full of broken remnants of gene drive systems and a few active ones in very, various ways. Our, ours are jumping genes. But, but seven years ago, no one even imagined that we could build something, that an individual researcher could build something that would on its own spread autonomously if released into the wild. And now, based on those experimental results in a number of different species, we're reasonably confident that we can. The reason we're lucky is because gene drive being linked to generational spread of the organism in question, even a fast reproducing organism takes dozens of generations to spread much because local dissemination, that, that advantage only applies insofar as you have a mixture with your original genotype. So it can never more than double every generation, even given optimal mixing, which of course would never happen. So it's slow. If you sequence the genome, you can't help but detect it. So it's obvious if you look, it's readily detectable. And the very first thing we did when we built the first one is we simultaneously built one that broke a gene, that was the first one, and then at the same time we built one that cut the first version and restored the function of the gene. So it's reversible. Mm -hmm. Whatever, what you can build to time? alter with one, you can build mm -hmm. another one that will change it. So anything that is slow, that is obvious and that is easily countered is not much of a threat, even if it's the sort of thing that is accessible to a single individual that can edit a whole species. So we're very lucky that the first autonomous biotechnology accessible to individuals is favors defense. It's entirely possible that future such technologies will not. And that is the hazard. That is what, suppose that there are areas of the tree of knowledge that we will discover in our ascent that will give one person the ability to cause catastrophic harm. We've survived with a handful of near misses on the nuclear issue because only a handful of people have had access to the big button. And there have been near misses. I don't, I'm not sure that we can afford a world in which thousands of people have access to that kind of Let alone millions. Let alone millions. So one of our efforts now, just to head this off as best we can, most of those people who know how to do it are biologists. They know how to work with relevant biological agents. They know how to engineer DNA. But the vast majority of them are not good enough chemists or engineers to make the DNA themselves. We have to order it. So DNA synthesis is the easiest way to build constructs like this. And so what, but what we can't afford to do is tell people what we're worried about. That is, we need a system that lets us, when someone, whoever it is, identifies something that they think might be in this class of technology, we need to give them the means of privately contacting someone whose job it is to deal with it. Who's we? Does that exist? Society. The people who care. The people who want, who want society to, Does that exist? Continue without mass death. So well, we, we need like a hotline for... It applies. It, the, the problem is general for technologies. Yeah. But, but specifically with respect to biotech, it's a little bit easy because DNA is digital. That is... So what we've developed is a way of screening for small fragments of DNA that are small enough that you can't just use smaller ones to readily assemble things. But it's also large enough that the set of possible sequences is sufficiently large that you don't have false positive matches. And then you can imply modern cryptography, distributed oblivious multi-party encryption, to keep the order private because companies don't want others to know what they're making. It has to be proof against a great power. And, of course, what you think is a bioweapon, private. And that similarly has to be proof against even a great power. But it power. looks like it's possible. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so on our team, are, um, and it's, we've been a deliberately joint operation. So we have 
all academics, because we know governments won't talk to each other right now at this kind of security level. But we have cryptographers from China, Andy Yao, Turing, Turing Laureate. We have Ron Rivest of RSA at MIT, and we have Ivan Damgard at Aarhus University in Denmark on this project. And we're actually unveiling it um, Thursday. And right now, I'm happy to yeah. talk about it. No, but, but this will yeah, be out later. It's going to be out later. Yeah. And that's one, it's a band-aid, but it sort of points in the direction we need to go to. We need some kind of system in which we can guard against things where we dare not this tell anyone like what really... we're guarding. It's where you can't trust a human, ideally, to know. And then the challenge is, from an intelligence perspective, the intelligence agencies we've talked to are deeply uncomfortable with this notion that there can be bioweapons that they don't get to know about. Because yeah. it doesn't mean, doesn't mean you can't defend against them, because the people who do know can say, oh, and by the way, in terms of this general class of defense, it's really important you be able to have these criteria. You can, that can still inform our de defense development. But we really, you know, you from, could, we, you we, could, know from experience, you can't. Guys, we have three minutes left. Um, that's fundamentally mind-blowing. Um, I'd love to give everybody just a final word um, on the, the subject. Um, you want to start talking? Yeah, I, I, was, I agree with everything that, that Kevin said. I, mean, I, did, I just my interest is that we're moving towards now, and that's why I pushed you on who's we. And you said yeah. well, those who care, well, we could kind of define that. And we're getting into this sort of this is more philosophical than the whole issue of need to know and who needs to know and why shouldn't others know. So I think it's just an overlaying complication, especially in the world we, of broken trust in governments. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's that is one of the challenges that more people. And I don't know what wishes that more people like-minded like you across all these different countries with make sure we're on the right path. Tim? I'm, I'm uh, humbled by this conversation, and I'm impressed and frightened and, uh, and full of hope as well. There's, there's all of it together. It's all what, what you end up making of it. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's society uh, that has to come together outside of technology um, that needs to come to an agreement on, on, on how best to use these new, wonderful, and dangerous tools that we have at our disposal. Because it's a tool like anything else. I was saying earlier under my breath, it's like fire. You know, yeah. when fire wasn't, you know, was discovered, it, it provided great uh, benefits and it also provided great destruction. This is no different. Yeah. It's just the next generation. Planning? Well, again, my, my perspective on this is coming from working in the African region where um, we actually see that the less educated are getting more and more children. And the more educated, the strong species, you know, the one that's supposed to reproduce, are getting no children. And, and looking from this point of view, that isn't, aren't we degenerating ourselves from, like, naturally, that we need this manipulation in order to improve ourselves? Well, that's not even talking about toxins or just in general but the environment and fertility where all of the technology that we've invented so far is actually killing our ability to reproduce. That, that's the other thing, that, that if you want to, if you're not too, you know, with work and, and stress and all that, a lot of times you can't. Mm -hmm. But the people that can't are the less educated, the less, you know, adapted to the informational world we're living in today. So... So we need that injection of, you know, CRISPR or whatever we need in order to adapt quicker. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the way that I see that naturally why we're moving. Andre? Look, I think the whole debate on, on technology is not just about technology, it's about what is humanity. And uh, to come back to the, to the power of the intelligence of the network, I mean, 100 years ago in our lifetime, we met 500 people. Today in our lifetime, we'll meet 50 to 100,000 and we are connected to thousands of people. So there is this kind of concept of humanity being a gigantic brain in itself. And I think we're just at the beginning of what it can do. And my feeling is, you know, this famous word about power corrupts and uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I think there's no uh, trace in history where there were some I don't want to be cynical about humanity, but I believe that the only way to prevent humanity against its uh, negative part is to distribute this power. And I think uh, we probably have the capacity if we distribute, for example, AI, but all these other tools. Mm -hmm. Remember the, the power of the Internet. It was to create a resilient network with no center 
And because it had no center, people thought it was fragile. Actually, it's the most powerful and, and, and resilient system that exists. Yeah. So that's probably what we need to do with the most advanced, but that means sharing of power. And of course, the big worry is that the world is not coming together. We also feel that increasingly we have this fragmentation. Well, the legacy world is not coming together. But the future society. I, I fully agree with you. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm still optimistic because when you see uh, on, a, on my European perspective, Europe is extremely fragmented from a nation. But when you see public opinions, they are very much. I mean, Fridays for Future, just to take this example, is exactly as big in the south as the north. Uh, in the West or East of Europe. So there is some kind of hope that this, this needs to be. And I, but I, I believe technology is here to be distributed as evenly as possible. It's the only way we will avoid the, the left apart to feel that this digital divide is another divide on top of the wealth divide, which is already huge. So Thank I, you. Well, we are embracing our future as a planetary civilization, all sharing the same spaceship Earth. And our technology is empowering our youth in a way that means that, for example, people of what you might say, like in Africa, um, that uh, the people who are, we might classify, you know, as less than by some metrics, their children have a limitless future. They are in no way limited by their parents. And the technology is enabling them to become potentially the greatest thinkers of our time, even though they may be born in a circumstance which, you know, by traditional means, uh, creates its own limitations. So the future is bright. I'm glad to hear that. We have one minute left. Um, great Kevin. The challenge before us is to accomplish as much good as we can. And I think we're at least converging on an understanding that disease is bad, aging is bad, Suffering is bad. We should end material scarcity and obligatory suffering and improve the chance of human and animal flourishing whenever, whenever and whenever we can. Do we have to add machine to that? Insofar as we believe they're become worthy of moral status, absolutely. I guess the, the, the sign of life in machines is a conversation for another chronicle. Um, thank you all for joining us for this our inaugural uh, Jedi Chronicle here Wonderful. at the Hub Culture Tech Lodge in Davos, Switzerland, uh, signing off on January 21st at 5 o'clock.